You're listening to the American Alpine Club podcast. This is Hannah Provo, content manager at the American Alpine Club. In this episode, I sit down to talk with Lauren Delaney Miller about her new book, Valley of Giants, Stories from Women at the Heart of Yosemite Climbing. This anthology is a groundbreaking collection of 38 first-person stories of women's role in shaping climbing in Yosemite. Valley of Giants includes stories from the 1930s until today and features well-known voices like Lynn Hill, Beth Rodden, and B. Vogel, as well as less recognized legends like Chelsea Griffey, Ellie Hawkins, and Lydia Brady. Dive into this episode to learn about these women's stories and what Lauren learned as she put together this groundbreaking book. This episode was originally recorded in early spring of 2022. Due to that time gap, some changes are of note. At the time of recording, Lauren was the editor of this podcast, but since then, Lauren has taken a step back from editing this podcast and the Cutting Edge podcast and is focusing on her studies. In addition, developments in American politics have occurred that shed a different light on the conversation that follows. We have chosen to keep the conversation as it was originally recorded. Hi, Lauren. It's great to have you on the American Alpine Club podcast. Thanks, Hannah. It's fun being on this side of the conversation. (laughs) Yeah, isn't that pretty funny? Um, For our audience that might not know, Lauren edits all our podcasts. So she's the, (laughs) the technical magician and now she's being interviewed. So Lauren, can you introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Lauren Delaney Miller. Um, I like to say that I live in Bishop, California, even though I spend most of my time in Berkeley where I'm in grad school now. Um, I think of that more as a temporary move than where my real home is. But um, yeah, I do a number of things for the American Alpine Club, um, which I can tell you if you want. Yeah, sure. <laughs> tell us all. Tell us all about it. <laughs> okay, so... Um, I like to think of myself as, um, ultimate Alpine Club freelancer. Um, I am one of the event coordinators for the Bishop Highball Kraken Classic. Um, and I am also an editor for the American Alpine Journal and Accidents in North American Climbing, which I cover California for. I worked on a project with the library, um, in which we put together a cool digital exhibit of a bunch of old photos that I'd found through an amazing contributor when I was putting my book together. Um, and I guess outside of the AAC, I'm a journalist, and I just released a book called Valley of Giants, Stories from Women at the Heart of Yosemite Climbing. Yeah, and that's primarily what we're going to be talking about today, because although we could go on at great length about all of your <laughs> volunteer exploits with the club, and as you detailed, there's a lot of them, um, the book is just come out, and we're really excited to be reading and talking about it. I just read it um, in full on two airplane, uh, two flights last week, and I was so excited. So I guess I know that you've written a little bit about kind of how this idea started for the guidebook to membership last year. But tell us a little bit now, like, where did this idea come from? How to get started? And like, what finally put you over the edge to make start start taking action and make it a reality? Yeah, I would say that this process was lived, I mean, this book project lived in my head for quite a long time. And I kind of just started by saying, wouldn't it be cool if there was a book just about women in Yosemite? Because there's been a lot written about Yosemite climbing and not a lot written about 
women in Yosemite. And most of that lives in like individual memoirs, right? You have like Lynn Hill and Steph Davis, and they've written amazing memoirs in which they talk a lot about their climbing in Yosemite. But then the other books that kind of are all about a Yosemite generation tend to focus on men. And so I just for a long time would just chat with my female climbing partners in Yosemite and say like, wouldn't it be cool if this existed? Like maybe we could put something like that together. And really it the idea itself was born out of being in Yosemite a lot. I worked on the search and rescue team there for three years and we just, I just felt like there were so many badass women around me all the time. And like, obviously I knew that women climbed before I went to Yosemite, but like, I couldn't believe how many there were and how many good stories I was hearing all the time, you know, at campfires and just chatting and hanging out in camp four or at the crag. And you'd say, oh, did you know that so-and-so actually soloed that in the eighties or something? And you say, I don't even know who that is. And it's because these people tend to not want to be in the limelight. And so a lot of these stories never got written down or maybe they did and they were in a magazine, but then we kind of moved on and the story wasn't really preserved in any sort of concrete way, the way that I think books do. And so for probably two years, I just thought about it. And I had friends who knew I was interested in it. And so they would say, be flipping through old climbing magazines and would see something, say an old article about Sue McDevitt and Yosemite, and they'd take a picture and send it to me. And I kind of just started keeping like folder on my computer of little things that I was finding. Like I would just keep notes of like, oh, I read um, on Super Topo about this woman, you know, doing whatever. And so I'd write down little notes and I kind of just started keeping this list of everyone that I thought would be kind of cool to compile into a book. And eventually I just felt like I had so many names that I could actually maybe pull this off. Um, that, yeah, I mean, I really just can't believe that this is the way it worked, but I started just, I think what really helped me was that, um, Mountaineers books who I ended up working with, they have a submission guidelines on their website, which means that if you want to pitch them a book, you can go look at what they want in a pitch packet and you can um, work on those things. And this is not the way it works for a lot of other publishers, right? Really big name publishers. Like if you want to pitch your book to Penguin Random House, they don't take submissions from individual people. You have to get a literary agent. And I did not really feel like I was going to do that because I wasn't really a writer. I wrote gear reviews. I wrote some personal essays. I liked writing, but I hadn't really done a lot like to warrant getting a literary agent. And so finding a publisher that had submission guidelines that I could pitch directly to was kind of what opened the door because then they would say things like, okay, we want a cover letter, a synopsis, um, a table of contents, a sample chapter. So once they had a list of what they wanted to see, it, it gave me something to kind of work towards because I would say, okay, this is what I should think about then. And it kind of gave me this list and I felt like, oh, then a lot of what I was doing was in line with what they were looking for in terms of, oh, they wanted a list of market research. And I felt like I already kind of had a list of, well, these are the other books about Yosemite climbing. And here's a list of books about women and climbing. Here's a list of things about women doing things in sports. Like I kind of just started compiling all these things that were on their list of what they wanted for a proposal. And as I went, it kind of gave me more confidence. And I started thinking, oh, okay. It went from an idea to a real proposal. And so that process took me a really long time because they want you to have a very concrete proposal, not just an idea of, I want to write about women in Yosemite. You know, I had lists and samples and synopsis and cover letters and all this sort of stuff. Um, so I felt like by the time I pitched it to them, I had actually done quite a bit of work already, but having that list of 
um, submission guidelines, I feel like is what kind of helped me feel like I had something to work towards because I like had no idea how to write a book, but because they had those guidelines, it like gave me a to-do list. Yeah. Uh, that sounds like <laughs> that would make, um, the enormous task of writing a book a little more manageable. Um, so I guess let's get into the content here. You're talking about women telling stories about climbing in Yosemite. Um, do you have any particular stories that were particularly meaningful for you to work with, like either the, work with the writer, edit them, kind of guide them along the path of being part of this book? Yeah. So I would say that the stories take a couple different shapes. Um, and that's something that I found was really interesting in this process. So there's things that I would say are things that were previously published or previously written and things that were written just for this book. And I felt like they were just really meaningful in different ways. Um, so, and one of the decisions I guess I should say I made early on is that because my goal was to include more women's stories, I wanted all those stories to be in the first person, in that person's voice. So I knew that I was going to only include things that they wrote themselves, which took some of the burden of writing off of me, right? Like this book ended up being almost 80,000 words. So I didn't have to write 80,000 words. I thought we'd just all share this. And each woman's story is, a, you know, between 1,000 and 3,000 words. So I thought, oh, we'll just all do a little bit. And I feel like that's something that ended up being awesome because each story is so different than having one person kind of be the voice for everyone. But the flip side of that is that not everyone is a writer. <laughs> and for people that have already passed away, because this book goes back to the 30s, that means that we have to look and see what they wrote while they were alive about their climbing. And if they didn't do that, then we can't necessarily include them. Um, like, because, right, like, I'm not going to write about what they did. I want them to write about what they did. But if they didn't do it and they're not around anymore, then how do we include this person? Or maybe it's not that they've just passed away, but not everyone is a writer. Not everyone is, you know, has the time and energy to put into something like this at this point in time. So it provided challenges in a different way. Um, so I'd say from like a commissioning standpoint, I worked with Julie Brueger and, um, Carla Fiery, who, um, were climbers from Washington that spent a lot of time in Yosemite and, um, they were just so interesting and their stories are separate. They wrote totally different stories, but they were climbing partners at the time. So they kind of make appearances in each other's stories and, um, those were really cool because I felt like a lot of the conversations I had with folks was around that they thought this project was a great idea, but they didn't totally understand why they should contribute to it. And I feel like it just led me to think a lot about the value that we place on who tells stories and what those stories are and what happens when we as a community only value the first or the fastest or the first free something and like what we miss when we don't invite other people to tell their stories too. And a lot of these things, a lot of these women were doing things that were the first or the fastest or the first free or something like that. Um, but I feel like it just goes to show a lot about uh, like how I had to convince a lot of people that their story meant something to me. And I thought it would mean something to other people and really showed me like how important it is to tell all different types of stories within climbing and not just focus on, um, the most kind of monumental historical ascents. And then I would say from like an archival standpoint, um, there were just a lot of things that were really hard to track down. And so that was really cool. We were able to publish some letters that I found was really interesting because you're able to capture someone's thoughts about something in the moment. Like it's so different than asking someone now to reflect on something when you get to see what someone maybe wrote in a journal or a letter in the moment. Um, it's, I'm sure way different than what it would be like if I asked them to remember that now. 
Yeah, along those lines, the Ruth Dyer Mendenhall letter about climbing Washington Column in 1938. The quote, so in the story, the team finds a body on Washington Column. And she quotes, the, the she thinks, she says, she's writing to her parents or something, is all my life I've hankered after finding a corpse and I finally helped find one. And I was like, this is such an interesting way to come across really a sad thing, right? <laughs> but it's like, it also just speaks so much of the language of the time and the way people talked. And it was just really kind of fun, um, even though it was also pretty weird. <laughs> Yeah, because it's cool. Like a lot of the stories that were commissioned were people reflecting on things. And even though it's nice to have those, because there are a lot of things that appear only in this book and nowhere else, um, it's different because when you're asking someone to remember something, it's really different than being able to capture what they felt like at the moment. And so I liked having that balance of stories that were maybe republished and were in a magazine or something else. There's stories from Alpinist and from people's blogs and um, interviews that people did at the site uh, for the Stanford Alpine Club collection, and we transcribed those and included bits of those. They're just really different, and I feel like it's cool to zoom out a little bit and think about how we um, remember things versus like how we think of them at the time. And it was cool to kind of have that balance of stories in there. Yeah, and I think you kind of talked about this earlier, but there's definitely also a balance and it was really meaningful to me as I was reading it, a balance of like, you know, Lynn Hill is in there and every most people know who Lynn Hill is. Beth Rodden is in there and that's amazing, but there's also really like a variance in the types of stories um, that were included, like things like talking about being on Yosar and the kind of the sad experience of when you're dealing with an accident um, that Alexa Flower talks about. So I'm really interested in like, did uh, did th- there's that variation in storytelling? I mean, some of it's just like the joy of being on the wall. Some of it's a story of first. Sometimes it's about pushing hard. Sometimes it's about grief and loss and really being insecure about your climbing ability and whether you should be climbing at all. Was that something that you kind of drew out of people and sought from these voices? Or did that kind of organically happen? Were people wanting to tell that variety of stories? I feel like most of it, was naturally occurring in that people would sometimes say, what should I write about? (laughs) And I'd often just say, well, when you think back on your time in Yosemite, like what comes to mind? And we would maybe narrow down, like a lot of people wanted to write about climbing on the nose. And so one thing I did have to do was to maybe steer some people towards talking about other influential climbs. Uh, I realized that this could be 38 stories of women climbing on the nose uh, because there's that many stories about that. (laughs) And so like, That's one thing that I did as kind of a curator was try to make sure that there weren't too many no stories. And then I guess when looking for things that had already been published, I had a little bit more say because, um, right, Lynn Hill wrote a whole book about stories. She's written a ton about rock climbing in Yosemite. So there I kind of got some room to think, okay, everyone knows who Lynn Hill is for the most part. That's going to be reading this book. And if they know any one thing about her, it's that she freed the nose. Um, So then I had to kind of decide, well, then should the story we include be the one about freeing the nose? Like it kind of seems silly to have a book about women climbing in Yosemite without talking about Lynn freeing the nose. But then I thought that's the story everyone already knows. If they know one thing, that's the thing they know. So maybe we should actually pick a different one of Lynn's stories. And, you know, things like people like Beth Rodden also climbed so much in Yosemite that we had more room, I think, to use people that had already written a lot to kind of fill in the gaps and say like, oh, like Beth's could have also been about the nose, you know, like it could have been about lots of things. And I thought, oh, there's kind of already a lot of El Cap stories. Like maybe we should talk about Meltdown with Beth dead, even though it very much, I was kind of on the fence with that one also of like, oh, maybe we should jump all the way back to them climbing Lurking Fear. 
um, and try to just get a different perspective. I would say that like 80% of the variation is naturally occurring and maybe 20% of it was me trying to just make a more of a balance, not necessarily an emotion, but just in topic. And I feel like those topics then lended themselves to different emotions. Like I tried to make sure that there weren't too many LCAP stories back to back to back. But I felt like other than kind of the theme of each story, I didn't curate too much emotion wise. And I feel like that was really naturally occurring. And again, was like a great indicator of climbing means really different things to people. Like there's people in that book who still love Yosemite and they go back every year and it's super special to them. And there's people that like, didn't necessarily have a great experience and they kind of stepped away after a period of time and haven't been back in a long time. And I think that was kind of interesting to read about too, that like it's over, I mean, the book overwhelmingly is positive, but there's definitely like some hard emotions too. But I think that's something that climbers will really understand. Yeah, absolutely. That sounds so cool. That process sounds really interesting. So why was it important to you to establish a deep history of women's climbing in Yosemite and not just the the modern rich hits like stories of climbing of women climbing today? Yeah, I feel like a lot of the historical writing about Yosemite um, doesn't include a lot of women. And I feel like there's just no context there. And I don't know, I there's a lot of other quotes <laughs> written by male authors about why women have not been included in climbing history literature very much. And I felt like I just needed to respond to some of those ideas that like, if women didn't do first ascents, then I'm not going to write about it because first ascents are the thing that we as climbers care about the most. And so I just think it just doesn't have a lot of context in it, right? Like there, it's true that there's periods of time when there were not as many women climbing as men. Like that's definitely true, but it doesn't necessarily mean that those stories aren't as important. And I think even saying things like, oh, well, she climbed with her husband or climbed with her boyfriend, like doesn't have any context to it, which is that it used to be much harder to learn how to rock climb than it is today. Like you have to try to remember that gear wasn't readily available. You couldn't just go to REI and get a rack and like go with a top rope book and go set things up and like learn. There were no gyms or classes or teachers or guides or any of that happening in Yosemite. So like the whole thing was so much more of a system. And I feel like it's really important to look at that of how did one learn how to climb? Well, mostly part of clubs, Sierra clubs, Stanford Alpine club, right? Clubs out of Berkeley, like there, you needed to like go to an organized place to learn how to do this. And then it would say, okay, well, you can't just then get better and go lead. You had to be a certified leader. You had to register with the park service. Like there's so much, climbing used to be so much more complicated. And I feel like if we don't take into account um, all that history, then it could be easy to say that women were adjacent to climbing history, but not integral to it. And I felt like the moment, I mean, a huge breakthrough for me was finding this photo of B. Vogel forging pitons at Stanford in the 1950s. Because I said, I was just like, what is more integral to climbing than creating with your hands equipment to go climbing? Like, how could you argue that this person was interested in climbing? not just because their boyfriend did it or something like that's a lot of work to put into something that you're only doing with, you know, for your male partners or something, which is like the prevailing knowledge. And so I feel like, I don't know, to me, history is really important because it's easy to overlook now because women are so prominent in climbing now. And I feel like there's a generally an understanding that women might not have been as integral to climbing before, but they are now, but I feel like that's still not really true. And it still overlooks people who were, not just part of the sport, but like actually advancing it. And maybe, yeah, and just like overlooking all the barriers that don't really exist anymore, like with having to 
be a certified leader and all these sorts of things, right? Like there are, if you look at a summit register and it has two men's names on it, it doesn't necessarily mean that there wasn't a woman there. It just means that maybe she didn't lead. So she didn't get to write her name down, but maybe she wasn't leading because she wasn't certified to lead. Like things were just so different. And I feel like if we don't look at all that context, then we don't really understand like where we've come from. And I also just feel like the history was really important to me to preserve now because as I worked on this book, a number of the people that I was working with passed away. And so it just really felt like, oh, the time is now. Like it's going to be forgotten. Like there's people that I wish I talked to. Like I would have loved to include stories about Catherine Freer, for instance, in this book. But I couldn't find any of her writings, first-person writings that she did about climbing in Yosemite. I could talk to partners and all sorts of things. But because I wanted to write first-person things, like she's not in this book because I couldn't find anything to include. And I just felt like they might have had great stories and they're already gone. Even for nothing other than documenting history, it felt like a really good time to do this because the women that were most influential in Yosemite climbing are a lot of them are aging and we're getting close to losing those stories. And I felt like if nothing else, the point was just to get them all down on paper while we could. Yeah, absolutely. seems like a worthy cause in and of itself. AAC memberships power this podcast. If you want to become a member and get all kinds of deals on gear, rescue benefits, and access to our publications, like the American Alpine Journal and Accidents in North American Climbing, visit us at our website at americanalpineclub.org slash learn dash more. Picking up on what you just, some of what you just said, I, one of the things that was really interesting to read about, um, especially in the early half of the book is those times when women are reporting on, you know, the men in Yosemite being like, oh, women can't catch lead belay falls <laughs> women can't haul bags like kind of like these very blatant examples of sexism of the time um and I was just kind of interested in like kind of how did you you know I think the more modern stories started veering away from that but there's definitely more like um elements of the way society and climbing culture interact there and you kind of allude to that in a lot of your setup pieces that describe each period so I guess as you were doing this research like, how were you seeing like general society's progress um, reflect into climbing culture and the barriers maybe these women were seeing or not seeing as they progressed through history? Yeah, it's interesting how each contributor did or did not want to engage with their being a woman, I guess is how I would say it. Like some people really felt like that was very integral to the experience that they had as a climber and they wanted to talk about it. And others really did not feel like it had been influential in their experience as a climber and then did not want to have to talk about something. Like there's definitely a couple of people who said, I just like think of myself as a climber. I've never thought about feminist issues and I don't want to now. And I'd say, that's fine. You don't have to. And then for a lot of those earlier ones though, people were like, oh, I finally get to talk about what kind of was happening to me. And I feel like yeah, like it's not that surprising that men actually legitimately doubted women's physical abilities to climb and to do things. Um, women didn't even, like all of those women didn't even get to do sports in school. So it's like, how would you know that they could climb or not? Like, how would you know if they could climb, catch hip and things like that and haul huge haul bags and stuff like that? Because women didn't have those opportunities. I mean, in Lynn Hill's book, she even talks about um, the difference between talking to her mother who didn't do sports in school and how she had at least gotten to do gymnastics 
which is one of the things that made Lynn Hill such a great rock climber right off the bat is that she at least had gymnastics. And it wasn't even until later that we got Title IX and more access to women to do sports in general. So I feel like those things are just not that surprising. And like, I'm not a historian by trade. I just don't think it takes a genius to see that, um, yeah, in the 1960s, a lot of women had to stop climbing because they had families. And that's just what happened. And by the late 70s and early 80s, you just see such a smaller percentage of those. And like, I didn't collect data. You know, I'm not a historian. This is not my history dissertation. But like, I just think looking at the trends of noticing things like that the first all-female ascent of El Cap happened at the same time, more or less, as Roe versus Wade and commercially available birth control and Title IX. And I just feel like, oh, this book is about climbing, but it could have been about anything. Like climbing is just a reflection. It's just one part of our lives, right? Like it's just a reflection of things that are happening in society. And like maybe some will take that as proof that climbing is a little ahead of the curve. I don't really know. I don't really feel like that's my place to say, but there were like changes happening in our society that were reflected through climbing. And um, even talking to women in the early 80s who were able to have a longer climbing career and go on to the big ranges out of Yosemite because they were more financially independent because they had more working opportunities. And not everyone would say it as like such blatant terms, but when you would talk to people and I'd say, well, how could you afford that? And they'd say like, oh, I had this great job as a math professor. And you can just imagine thinking back to people like B. Vogel in the 50s who had a PhD but wasn't able to get a job doing it and then ended up moving to Texas with her husband. And that was kind of, you know, one of the things that was the end of her climbing career. And you're thinking, oh, I'm just like noticing parallels, right? Which is that at one period of time, this woman having to follow her husband's career because she cannot get a job is very different than what people are telling me about how they could travel so much and go on big expeditions and things like that by the late 70s, early 80s. And you're saying, oh, I don't have data about income equality. I just have heard enough stories to feel like, oh, we can draw a lot of those parallels. Yeah, that's really cool and very complicated, but that's awesome that you can like start seeing those patterns. Um, one element kind of along those lines that I really enjoyed about the book was that there was kind of a combination of stories about all female ascents and then some that were really just reflecting on strong multi-gender teams, like that the interaction wasn't about sexism at all or like a bad interaction, but it was this really positive like mentorship or um, just really good partnership um, with, with this woman who's telling her story with a, a guy. Did you see that? And did you see that on, was that on purpose that that was happening, uh, that you kind of had the spread of those stories? Because you could have easily focused on just all women's teams or something like that. Yeah, that's interesting. I don't think I'd really put as much thought into that within each story. Um, I felt like a lot of my job was to kind of just support the contributors and what they wanted to write about. And I feel like maybe something that the book doesn't do is really address one of the reasons that women have often climbed on all female teams is because it adds, they feel like it adds a layer of like credibility to their ascents because they're able to show that women led all those pitches, right? Like you, as opposed to times when women have teamed up with men and then later have been assumed to say have followed all the hard pitches or to follow the whole thing or something like that. Like, I feel like we get a lot of that backlash of like, oh, they climbed this route. Okay, well, did she lead, you know, or was she just in a support role? And when women climb together, you don't really get that. 
But I didn't necessarily hear that directly from any of the contributors, and it wasn't really something on my mind. I felt like my job was was mostly to encourage people to talk about either a favorite memory that they have from their time in Yosemite or maybe a really pivotal moment. Um, And so I think for some, that pivotal moment might just be the hardest thing they ever climbed or some it's more about an experience with a partner. But yeah, that's definitely, I don't know, it's really interesting that you bring that up because I don't think that's something, it definitely wasn't something I was counting or trying in any way to balance other than just by kind of trying to provide space for folks to write about whatever they really wanted to write about. Yeah. Well, then that's really cool that that just kind of happened organically, that spread of partnership, honestly. In the process of making this book um, and working on editing it, did were there any moments of just absolute discovery and surprise? Yes. Um, I felt like one of the coolest people I got introduced to was Lydia Brady. And she's like this amazing Kiwi climber. She was the first woman to climb Everest without oxygen. And now she's like this badass mountain guide and does all this really cool stuff. And she was not in Yosemite for a very long period of time, pretty much just a fall season and then the following spring season. But in that period, she climbed 10 big walls. And it was so cool to talk to her because a lot of people really didn't know about this like huge string of ascents that she had had, which was um, like the second descent of Sunkist and a bunch of other hard aid walls. And it was so cool to talk to her because... I think she's someone that because she didn't spend huge amounts of time there was really easy to be overlooked, but her ascents were really influential and she's just a really interesting person. And the way she talks about hard aid climbing is just hilarious to me because she just makes everything sound so casual when in reality, like it's so sketchy and, (laughs) or just like, so, I don't know, like she was doing really cutting edge climbing and she just kind of brushes it all off and, um, makes it seem like it's normal to have, you know, 18 replacements in a row or something like that. And yeah, she was an amazing person. And I feel like for me, maybe more than discovery, it was just this amazing opportunity to connect with so many people that I looked up to. Um, And there would just be total pinch me moments of like, I can't believe I'm on the phone with Liz Robbins, you know, and stories like that, that would just I don't know. Like, I just couldn't believe how often I got to pe- talk to people that I really looked up to. And I know it's kind of a common thing within climbing to say, oh, it's cool that climbing's cool because we get to talk to our heroes and like we get to end up at the same crag as our heroes. But I definitely felt that while working on this, that everyone leveled with me and I would feel like I was talking to one of my heroes and they would just act like I was another climber and we would just be chatting. Maybe more than discovery, it was just this like continual series of pinch me moments in which I like got to talk to people that. I just really looked up to. That's awesome. Yeah, I love that part of climbing. Uh, very fun. Um, kind of going back to the content, because I forgot to ask about this. Um, one thing that really stood out to me was the one piece that's called Like Mother, Like Daughter by Jane Jackson and Catherine Cullinane. Um, I kind of generally feel that motherhood is pretty invisible, even still in like climbing culture. I mean, I've noticed recently there's a lot more women on like social media talking about their the process of still climbing while they're pregnant and then being a mom and like navigating that reading it just kind of was like a jolt of like wow we don't talk about that enough so it was really cool to have like a very specific story in which the the mother and the daughter are climbing together and it's really fun um and then you also talked about the way that motherhood ended up kind of being the end of careers for some women down the line do you have any thoughts on that was that something that you thought about, like the element of motherhood in these stories? 
Yeah, I would say it was just really interesting to talk to people about their different experiences with motherhood. For some, it's like feels really influential to their climbing career. For others, it just feels like something totally separate from it. And it seemed really, I don't know, just interesting to me about how different people's experiences with motherhood could be and like a good reminder of how personal of an experience that is and how basically just like not to make assumptions about what people's experience with motherhood or parenthood feels like because it's I just noticed such a wide range of people's feelings about what it meant for their climbing or their life in general and honestly like whether it was something they were looking for or not looking for and how it changed their lives in different ways and unexpected ways and yeah like stories like Jane climbing with her mom and there's a story by Eliza Kerr about her climbing with her daughter and it's just like yeah, I just loved that idea because I felt like that is something kind of unique to women. And I feel like I've never really even heard a lot of stories about um, guys climbing with dads. Like even just the, I don't know, parenthood is just such an interesting thing and it's so personal. And I felt like it was really interesting to just see the full spectrum of kind of human emotion through that same lens. I had such an interesting time talking to people about that aspect of their lives and how some of them feel like it's so instrumental to who they are. And for others, it's just one of many things that they are. And yeah, I felt like that was just another one of these great reminders that um, motherhood is really different for everyone. And it's good to not make assumptions about what people's experience with that is. Last questions about the making of the book. Obviously, you're following some chronology here, but within each kind of time period, I, I kind of assumed that there might be some like flexibility and creativity that you could have in the order. Was there like a specific thought process for how the stories were ordered? Yeah. So, I mean, a huge thing that I had to do was decide when the book would start, <laughs> which seems like maybe a simple thing, but for me, it really wasn't like the Sierra and Yosemite have such a long history of scrambling. Um, that to say that this is a book about rock climbing means that you have to define rock climbing. And so I decided to define rock climbing as climbing with a rope. And so that was kind of one way that I decided where to begin. And then I guess I had to decide where to end. And I thought, okay, I guess I'll just include as much as I can. <laughs> but it's kind of weird to just call something up until the present <laughs> because it feels like what is the, I, someone's going to read this in the future and be like, what is the present? Um, so even just putting those parameters parameters on the whole project was kind of hard but then yeah like I feel like within the world of climbing especially in Yosemite we already have names for eras of different periods of time we think about the golden age and the stone masters and the monkeys and all these different generations that kind of have ideas but I feel like at some point I had to stop and say how are those eras defined and were they the same for women and I feel like we often think about you know, the difference between the golden age and the stone master era as being some sort of transition from aid climbing to free climbing? Or is it that we're going now into clean climbing from pitons? Like you feel like you actually actually have to kind of decide what that would be. And so I tried to use those already established generational names and eras as a guideline, but I really wanted to look at the stories in this book and put them into chronological order and see if there were other themes um, that I kind of noticed as like transitional periods. And so, yeah, like thinking like the very first chapter is the very early days, which really only goes up to 1959. And it's a much smaller chapter, but I feel like that was the generation of true first descents. Like we're doing the first ascents on many of the formations. And then I feel like you, the next chapter, which goes from 1960, 1974 is more about, um, getting harder 
climbs done and going back to those same formations and maybe climbing harder, less obvious lines. Um, and then after that, we kind of make a shift into free climbing. But it was cool to be able to shift the years of those a little bit based on what the women were doing. And it more or less follows the same um, idea as the generations that we've already talked about. But it was cool to go back and try to confirm if women were making the transition, say, from doing first ascents to doing harder aid lines, from doing harder aid lines to free climbs, and then trying to climb faster and like going back and freeing some of those original aid lines. Like That's kind of the general arc of climbing progression, but it's cool to see, oh, were women making those transitions at the same time? And it was really cool to go back and see, oh, when did women in Yosemite start shifting their attention to free climbing also? And was it the same? And I generally found that more or less the generations were the same. Um, But some of them, yeah, were like pretty hard to define. Like it was really hard for me to define a difference between the present day back to maybe the early 90s and try to break those into two different generations. But it felt really hard to do that. I would say actually further back you go, the easier it got, like the you know, one chapter kind of ends with the first couple of women to climb on El Cap, but then the next chapter begins by talking about um, women really shifting towards free climbing. And that's not everyone, but a lot of that just came from me talking to people and say, did you know these people? Like, did you think of them as your generation or did you think of them as older than you? Or like, did you think of them as younger than you? Like, where did you notice a shift? Because a lot of these women were spending lots of time over many generations in Yosemite, like talking to people like Lynn Hill, you're like, okay, well, like she's a stone master, but like she didn't come back and free the nose until much later. And so it's just like, what generation is this? Like, what was she noticing at the time of really like, did you consider these people your peers or did you think of them as a different generation? And so that I felt like was really interesting part of this process for me to nerd out on is like where to break the chapters up. I just thought that was super interesting. Yeah, that definitely sounds super interesting. Um, and a lot goes into that. Absolutely. So um, what was your favorite thing about working on this project? It's so hard to say. <laughs> I mean, like this was a three year project. And so I feel like I had a couple different favorite things. One is just like the immense satisfaction of working on something for that long. Like I've been telling people this was definitely the mega project, like season after season and getting to like finally share it with people this week is so cool because a lot of people that I know have been anticipating this and have known that I've been working on this and probably have been hesitating to ask me how it's going because I've been working on it for a long time. And so just the like for me personally, the satisfaction of finishing a long time project is pretty amazing. I mean, it like took me almost as long as I was in college for it. So it's crazy to kind of think about how much my life even changed from when I started thinking about it to when the book actually came out. And I would just say that now probably my favorite part is getting to see people's reactions to it. Like it's just been such a warm reception and it's so nice to hear from people, even the other contributors in the book who didn't necessarily know who all the other contributors were saying, oh, it was so great to be reminded of this friend that I had in the 70s and I haven't seen her in a long time and seeing her name made me so happy. And I don't know, like just hearing from people about what it means to them is really validating. And then, yeah, like I said, just getting to talk to all these people. Like I got to talk to family members of people that had passed away and tell them how much their story is going to mean to people now into the future. And that was really meaningful or being able to connect people. I connected some people through working on this who hadn't talked to each other in decades that used to climb together in Yosemite. And that was really cool. And I mean, just for me getting to talk to people, like getting to be on the phone with Liz Robbins, you know, and getting to um, 
talk to Lynn Hale about which story she wants to be included and weighing the pros and cons of talking about her different experiences and how to pick one of those that would fit into this collection and meeting so many new people. And I don't know, it was just heartwarming thing the whole way through. I mean, it's totally ideal. Like, like things just went pretty smoothly. I mean, there were tons of cruxes along the way. I don't think I've ever really worked on a project for this long. And so it feels pretty good to clip the chains. <laughs> oh, yes. I love that metaphor. <laughs> and, and to your second point, um, reading it throughout, I was just like, oh my gosh, I cannot wait to go climbing. There are so many people out there doing awesome. There's so many women out there doing badass things. And that's so cool. And I was just so inspired um, reading all the stories. I think you definitely made an impact with it. <laughs> so I guess a really important question now is how can listeners get a hold of a copy? Yes, there's a couple different ways. Um, the most straightforward way is through my publisher, which is Mountaineers Books. Um, it is available on Amazon, if that's something that you do. And there's a number of small bookstores. I'm working on putting together a list of where those bookstores are. It's kind of hard to tell. Um, I would say that if you're in California, it's in a lot of outdoors-related stores around California. I'm not too sure about bookstores that are selling it in person out of state, but you can get it on things like Bookshop, which orders directly through independent booksellers. It's kind of like Amazon, but for independent bookstores. Um, so that's another option as well. Awesome. It was so great to talk to you, Lauren. I hope everyone gets a copy of this book because it really is really an awesome book. Um, and thanks for all your work on the podcast. We don't say it enough. <laughs> Thank you. Now I can get to work editing this. <laughs> if you are interested in hearing Lauren talk about her book in person, you can catch her at the International Climbers Fest in Lander, Wyoming this July and at Yosemite Facelift in September. Today's show was hosted by me, Hannah Provo, and produced by Sierra McGivney with help from Shane Johnson. You can find your own copy of Lauren's book, Valley of Giants, Stories from Women at the Heart of Yosemite Climbing, by going to mountaineers.org books.